If you got a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter two. It's back there in the very back, Hebrews chapter two. We got one passage today. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. One more time. Take a deep breath. Let this truth sink in. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing us into these moments where we can have an encounter with your living word. You tell us it is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged swords, that it can pierce through joint and marrow, that it is what can allow blind eyes to see, is what can allow hearts that have gone stone cold hard to be melted so that they can feel the things that they used to feel, so that they can experience you in the ways they used to experience you. And so, Jesus, I pray today that by the preaching of your word, you would do those things that only you can do. I don't want to give anybody today the best that man can offer. I want to be able to preach in a way by your power to give them the best that you can offer. And so, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way, that you would allow me to just be a vessel through which your word can be poured out to. And I pray that what you tell us would come true, that when you would be lifted up, Jesus, you would draw all men and all women unto yourself. And I praise you ahead of time for the way you're going to do that as I lift you up today. In your name, amen. All right, so if you're a little bit new to MCC, one of the things that we've, we've really just started doing here is just picking a book of the Bible and kind of going through word by word, verse by verse. And so today uh, we have come to what I would call a grenade of a passage. It's a, really a grenade uh, verse. And why I mean that is it's kind of one of those things where it's a little small little thing, but bound within it is so much power. And what I'm praying happens today, I've been praying this all week as we just go to one passage of scripture, is that the shrapnel of this grenade explodes in a way that hits you and tears apart all the things that it needs to so that you're left in a brand new way as this verse explodes onto the scene, onto our lives, into our church, and hopefully everywhere else we go. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it kind of word by word, verse by verse, and get the truth and ring this verse for all it has. First, here's what it says. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Let's just camp out there for a second. So the book of Hebrews is a letter that's really more of a sermon written by an author to a people who are coming out of a Jewish faith. Their roots are in being Jewish. That's why the book is called Hebrews because they were Hebrews, all right? But they weren't just like, hey, we're Hebrews, like all the people in the Old Testament. They're now Hebrew people are putting their hope in their faith and trust in Jesus. And what the author is having to do right here, and this is what he's getting ready to explain really for the rest of the entire book, He's explaining to them how Jesus is true and greater, how Jesus comes and offers us a truer life and a greater life, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the heroes of their faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the processes of their faith, whether it be the sacrificial system or the Exodus. Jesus is the one who's truer and greater than all of those things. And then we bust on the scene in this verse 
And he's getting ready to talk about a savior in Jesus who is made perfect through suffering. The reason he's leaning into this is because the people in the Hebrew church, this getting this letter, this sermon, they were struggling with something that I know me and you can have in common with them. They put their faith and trust in Jesus, but they had a hard time grasping a savior who would suffer. See, they were coming out of this recollection of there being this Old Testament God who would split the Red Sea open, allow them to walk through on dry land and just close the bad boy back up and just allow all the Egyptian Pharaoh's army just continually be on the bottom of the ocean. They really liked the, the God who would set up a kingdom like David's and allow this big king to be in charge and they would you know, have their big nation and they would be the ones who were ruling, expanding a kingdom like God did through David and they, God did through Solomon. They liked the God who is powerful, mighty, the God who rules, the God who reigns. They love all of that. And that's really what they want. A God who squishes their enemies, a God who snuffs out anything that would come against them as the chosen people. And so what they're having a hard time grasping is this God who would put flesh and blood on and come down to earth and this God who would go to a cross. This God who would have no home, no kingdom, no righteousness, you know, none, of this, none of this stuff, none of these things that they connected with what a, a ruling and reigning God would look like. He was homeless. He had a ragtag group of fishermen that followed him around. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a Pharisee. He was just this rebel out in the country, healing people, speaking to people and saying he was God. And then at the culmination of these short three years that he spent leading this ministry, he calls his death, goes to his death there on a cross and then rises again. And they're going off eyewitness testimony that he did rise from the grave. But what they're having a hard time grasping is in the midst of our own personal suffering I would rather have a God who's triumphant. I'd rather have a God who kicks down the Romans' teeth. I'd rather have a God who wins, not this God that dies on a cross. See, what they're having is this disconnect between the victory at the cross and the resurrection and the victory they want in their own life. That's a disconnect, I hope, that you felt at times. And you can find the solution in Jesus today. So he says it's fitting, which is kind of his way of saying, guys, it makes sense. I know it doesn't seem like it would make sense that God would truly flex his muscles and his power by allowing Jesus to die and suffer on a cross, but truly it is fitting that he would be a suffering savior. And he's gonna go on to explain that. So let's keep going, the next phrase. It was fitting that he, he's talking about God there, it's fitting that God for whom and by whom all things exist. So he's building the case, he's building the passage up for the next part he's getting ready to explain. He says, hey, you guys know God, right? What we know about God is that God is the one who created everything. And on top of that, God is not just the one who created everything, he created everything for himself. The big word there is glory. The whole reason that God created everything, whether it would be piglets or mountains, God created all of those things so that they would bring glory to him. Everything in creation was created for the sole purpose to glorify God. He's saying God made it all, created all so that it would glorify him. That's the whole purpose that that exists. He's bringing their minds to that place. God made all of this, and why did he make it? He made it for his glory, which is why, and it makes so much sense that he would say the next phrase here. He made everything in bringing many sons to glory. So again, why did God create everything that he ever created? To bring him glory. 
Now he goes here in this track with what the author is doing. He says, okay, now Jesus is a suffering savior. And he did that to bring many sons to glory, which implies, track with me, implies that somehow us sons and daughters, us humanity, we had gotten out of glory. Now, if you know your Bible, you know when that happened. It happened in Genesis 3. It's the fall. See, God tells us in our origin story that we start out in God. We start out in the fullness of his glory. We start out with this story of, of, of mankind being created. In Adam's account, we see Adam there, and it says that God literally breathes into him. And that's what makes him have life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about God breathing into Adam... I mean, you kind of be face to face. Like if I'm trying to breathe into you, what do I got to be? All up in you, <laughs> right here. Like if I'm right here and I'm trying to breathe into you, like you're going to smell coffee this morning for me, <laughs> right? And so, so we, see, we see God breathe life into Adam. So what, when Adam's eyes open, the first thing that he sees is the full face, unveiled face of the father there face to face with him. What you see is the son, Adam, and the father, God, face to face in the fullness of glory. And listen, that's how God created and intend for it to be. But you've read your Bible too. And you know that in Genesis 3, that glory, that perfect connection between God's, God's creation and God as the creator, it gets messed up. And so there in Genesis 3, we see them leave glory because of the choices that they make, they're no longer able to be in this perfect union with God. They're no longer being able to be in the most glorious place. There's a gap in the glory. And so when this passage shows up and it says that Jesus, as the founder, and, and the founder of their salvation, he's becoming perfect through suffering. In doing so, he's bringing many sons to glory. Again, that's the glory you were created to have from the very beginning. And so what Jesus is doing through his suffering is he's bringing you back into the place you belong. What's wild here is what could not be accomplished by the word of God. Now track with me before you start throwing heretical stones at me and everything else. Lean into it. How did God create the world? Remote controls, like he didn't send an email. When God wanted to create the world, he spoke it into existence. He speaks all of these things into existence. That's how he moves through creation. And so what we can deduce from that is there's obviously immense power in the word, the spoken word of God. They have the power to create all of our galaxy, this galaxy and all the other thousands of millions of other galaxies that are out there. He speaks and that happens. He speaks and his power goes out and it makes that happen. It goes out. And again, everything that was created was created through his word. And everything that was created through his word was created to reflect him and bring glory back to him. Now, man messed up. And there's a gap, there's a glory gap between humanity and divinity. And what we see here is there is a gap that cannot be closed by the power of God's spoken word. God chooses not to do that. Because again, if there's a distance in the relationship, Man is messed up, man has fallen. What you don't see God doing from his high heavenly throne is looking down at broken, fallen humanity and going, forgiven, you get forgiveness and you get forgiveness and you get forgiveness and we're all forgiven. I'm gonna speak my spoken powerful word and everybody's gonna get forgiven. And you all get back, the glory gap's closed, everybody's cool, let's get back to the garden. God doesn't do that. 
He chooses not to have this word, spoken word, that was powerful enough in creation to create the entire universe. He doesn't let it, because it can't. He doesn't let it close the glory gap. Instead, he sends his son. And what's wild about this, where God's word is what allows creation to happen, for salvation to happen, the word of God has to be made flesh. Track with me like this. God's words were sufficient for creation. He spoke it and it all happened. But the word, capital, logos, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and it made its dwelling among us. See, God speaks the world into existence by the power of his word. But in order for salvation to come to the word, world, the word has to actually become flesh. It becomes flesh in the form of a manger in Bethlehem as Jesus is born to a virgin, grows up, lives, experiences what we experience down here on this planet. Because in order for salvation to happen and the gap to be closed, the word had to be made flesh and it had to dwell among us. So what this means is for us to be brought to glory. Again, that's the whole thing that the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's bringing many sons to glory. So in order for us to be brought into glory, the son had to let go of some of his glory. That's not saying Jesus became less God. He's always 100% God. He's always 100% man. But he chooses to leave the place where the fullness of glory resides in the heavenly realms. And he comes down here where people backstab, where people lie, where people manipulate, where you wake up in the morning and you have bedhead, where kids go through puberty and drive you nuts. Like he comes here. He lets go of some of his glory so he can take hold of people like me and you. And that's why the next phrase, I believe, is so incredibly fitting. Let's track with it now that we're hopefully beginning to fill out this verse. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's what we were created to, we're trying to get back to where we started, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the founder. That founder is a capital F. That's Jesus the founder. So let's just talk, talk about that word founder. So in order to bring many sons to glory, he made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Let's talk about founder. It's a Greek word, archegos, all right? We're gonna talk about Greek stuff. We're gonna say it exotically like it's, we're really on the isles of Greek, or not Greek, Greek is an island, but we're, we're in Greece, okay? So let's try to say this together so we get it. Archegos, one, two, three. Archegos. There you go. Good job. Archegos. Good stuff. Good stuff. A couple of different ways that this Greek word is translated into English. Pioneer, author, captain, and leader. Here in our passage, it's translated as founder. Some other places, um, even in different uh, Bible translations, it's captain. Some other places, it's author. Personally, I really appreciate the two words, pioneer and captain. To me, I think they exemplify what is actually happening as Jesus leads sons to glory. Let's talk about pioneer for a second. Pioneer implies that I come to this harsh, hostile territory where nobody has ever been before, this, this complete backcountry where no trail has ever been blazed, and I am the pioneer who makes a way through this trail, through this treacherous territory, and makes a way back to where the end goal, end destination is. I pioneer this path. And I get that. 
Because that's really what Jesus does. Jesus comes here and we could have never ever made a path back to God. But Jesus comes, lives a perfect life and carves out for us the bloodstained path that leads back to the Father. And I also love the word captain. My sports people in the room, you understand this. This is why I love thinking about Jesus as not just the author, not just a pioneer, and not just the founder, because in those things, you kind of get this realm or this reality that, yeah, you're out there doing those things, but I'm still kind of down here. But the word captain implies, especially if you think about it from the sports side of things, captain implies I am not just somebody who's up in the booth or in the dugout watching the game happen and hoping you win and cheering you on. Personally, I I don't really want a God who that's all they do. Knowing that I have a God who got in between the lines with me, knowing that I have a God who actually got on the field that I live and play and work in, I love that. Because what do captains do? Captains are here and they are a go-between between the coach, the leader, and then the people who are on the field. They're what connect the people on the field, the rest of the team, to the goal, the mission, the hope, and the purpose of the coach. And so in Jesus, we see this captain who is the bridge, the one who reaches one hand out to grab the team, the church, and then reaches forward to the father and says, I am going to make a way. I'm going to connect these two and it's going to stretch me. It's going to allow my arms to be strung from the east to the west. I'm going to be whipped and brutally beaten there on the cross, but I'm going to be the captain, the founder, the pioneer of their salvation in doing so. I'm going to get them from down here back there to the glory they were created for. And so he leads many sons to glory because he's not just our pioneer. He's not just the author. He's not just our captain. He is our leader and he's our founder. He is all of those. And so the passage goes on. He's not just the founder, but he's the founder of something really, really mission critical. He's the founder of their salvation. Salvation. This is a big word. When we hear this word salvation at church, like I think our minds, depending on your background or what you grew up going to church in, or or even if you've ever really gone to church, you hear this word salvation, or you hear this thought of like, I'm saved. And our minds go all sorts of different places because of what we've grown up on and what we've experienced. And the truth about salvation is what it really does at its true core is it reveals the heart of God. See, where creation revealed the character of God, salvation reveals his heart. That in God, we have a father who is willing to stop at no lengths. Track with me on this. In salvation, we see the heart of a father, a good father who says, I will do whatever it takes to get my kids back. There's no length that I will not go to. And we see him, that no length that he was willing to go to is his one and only begotten son. So if this son, this Jesus, is the founder of our salvation, and that is such a great salvation, we better make sure that we understand what in the world is really bound up in that word salvation. What are the grand of God, glorious implications of our salvation? Now, I wanna walk you through what is kinda gonna be a graph, chart, image, I don't know what to call it. And the reason I wanna walk you through this is we have to understand what in the world salvation is. Like as people, that is the most critical, most important thing that has happened to you. It, it, is, it is what hinges your eternity is, is salvation. Whether you will spend an eternity in heaven with the heavenly father, or you will spend an eternity in hell without him, hinges upon whether or not you have salvation. 
And so we better understand and know what in the world this means. Now, what I'm getting ready to show you and walk you through, some of you are gonna go, oh man, that's kind of deep. Like, those are big words. Like, that's, that's the deep end of the pool. And what I'm here to say to you, as lovingly as I can, what I'm getting ready to show you is not the deep end. It is entry level. And, and my hope and my heart as a pastor of this church is that we, if we don't understand anything else about scripture, that we fully understand what has been made available to us in our salvation. It's the most critical, most important thing. If you don't get this, well, what's the point of knowing how many days really Jonah was in a whale or was it a whale or was it a fish? Like none of that really matters if you don't know salvation. And so I wanna walk you through this. And my hope is from this moment forward, you would go, I am no longer a person who can say that I've spent decades coming to church and I don't know what in the world, if, I, if a four-year-old or a fourth grader asked me, mommy, daddy, grandma, grandpa, what does it mean to have salvation? That I couldn't give them an answer. That from this moment forward, when my niece comes and goes, hey, what does sanctification mean? I'm like, oh, you know, go ask your mom or go ask your pastor. Go, go ask somebody who you know, has, has a, a master's in divinity. Guys, these are things, <laughs> let's just have a really honest conversation. Raise your, let's, try it, let's try it like this. Raise your hand if you've been going to church for longer than 10 years, all right? <laughs> Look at you guys, churchgoers. All right, raise your hand if you've been going to church longer than 20 years. All right, cool. Raise your hand if you've been going to church longer than 50 years. All right, hair's starting to turn. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 70 years you've been going to church? Any 70s? I see some 70s. Okay, I love it. I love it. We have some people who've been going to church for 70 years. And like almost everybody was at that 10, 10 year mark. That's awesome. What I'm getting ready to tell you is like year two stuff. But for some reason, we show up at churches and, and we just get okay with not getting to this. And so I, I, what I'm really trying to do is like put the beautiful, amazing a T-bone steak or tofu, if you're a vegan, put that out there on the table and go, man, I wanna spend the rest of my life grasping and digesting and, and discovering what in the world this great salvation that I have in Jesus really actually is. So let's, let's break it down like this, salvation. Salvation occurs at the three parts of who you are. All right, salvation is not just this thing you did at a Billy Graham revival. Salvation is not just something you did at, at vacation Bible school. Salvation is not just you at Christian camp going throwing a log on the fire and telling your story and going back and hoping you lived a better life. Salvation is Jesus saving you on the three parts of your life. These three parts are your spirit, your soul, and your body. Let me explain. Your spirit, this is the most of God part of you. This is a part of you that is gonna spend eternity somewhere, heaven or hell. This is your spirit. This when, when God breathed into Adam, it's the spirit of the living active God being breathed into Adam. The, that is, when it says he's creating the image and likeness of God, that is the most true aspect of it, the spirit. Now, because of the fall, because of your brokenness and your sin that you were born into from our forefather, Adam, we all do not have Holy Spirit. We have horrible, messed up spirit. And you can just watch a group of toddlers and you can go, yep, yep, yep they're not, they're mean, you know? You, you'll hear mine and no, and you'll hear tears, like ripping passies straight out of mouth and putting them in their mouth. They don't understand how gross it is, but it's, they're just little balls of sin. That's just how they are. And they're cute, but they're little balls of sin. And this is why, maybe you never connected these dots. This is why the third member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, because your spirit 
could not get back to the holiness and the glory that is God. That's why you have to have a new spirit. That's why when, when Jesus enters into your life, the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It is the guarantee that you have received that salvation. It's the Holy Spirit. And that is what saves you. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, the next aspect of your salvation occurs at your soul. Now, this is where the Bible can be maybe a little bit confusing because it uses kind of three words for what is soul. It uses soul and it uses mind and he uses heart. The Bible talks about these things kind of all in the same way. The best way I can explain it to you of this place where you receive salvation and this, this soul mind part of you, this is where your feelings are at. This is your emotions. This is what makes you want to do what you want to do when church is over. It's your operating system. It's how you get through traffic. It's that part of you that you choose to fill up the gas tank when it's at a quarter, or if you're one of those people who fills it up when the thing says, uh, you have three miles to empty. Like that is your soul. That's your operating system. All right, tracking with me. And he comes and he saves us there. Last part is he saves our body. This is this promise that eventually we're gonna get to this place where these old broken, messed up bodies are gonna be completely and fully restored and renewed. All right. To round this out and explain a little bit more, this salvation on the three parts of you, spirit, soul, and body, happen in the three parts of time because you don't just exist in the right now. You have a past and everybody in this room is gonna have a what? A future, all right? So salvation occurs on three parts of you in the three parts of time. First, spirit, this is the past. This is every sin that you've ever committed caused your spirit to be damned to hell fully separated from God. But when we receive salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, our, our spirit is saved. So that's where we can fully say, I am saved at this very moment, I am saved. And our big Christian word for that, that really isn't a big Christian word that is really the shallow end of the pool, not the deep end of the pool, is justification. So what this means is because my past has been completely cleared, I am no longer guilty of what I've done. I am justified before a holy, perfect, righteous God because it is it's bound up in the word justified. It is just as if I'd never sinned. Justified it is just as if I'd never sinned. And the reason I can be justified, and the reason I can say it's just as if I'd never sinned is because Jesus took all of the punishment for my sin. So my account is at zero because he paid it all. So that's my past being paid for. The next is this reality that you have this soul and this body and this mind that's operating and working right now. And this is at the present. So this is in a very real sense where you can at this very moment, you can say, I am saved, but I am also being saved. Right now in this room, you are being saved. And our big Christian word that's at the shallow end of the pool, not the deep end, is the word sanctification. Sanctification. This is where Jesus has set me apart. He has saved me. He has pulled me out of the wretched place that is this world and he has set me aside. He has made me holy. Think about the sculpture of David, right? You know that the big thing where David's there and I think, I think he's nude. I'm pretty sure he's nude. I'm not gonna show you a picture probably because he's nude. All right, so David is there. The big sculpture, I can't remember. Maybe it was Michelangelo or Leonardo. It was one of the Ninja Turtles. They made him. <laughs> One of those Ninja Turtles made the giant sculpture of David. But before it ever gets back to the workshop where he is chiseling on him and making him into the just the ripped David figure that he is, the creator of that had to take it and set it aside and say, this is the block of marble that I will chisel this masterpiece out of. 
And when he takes that and puts that in the workshop, that is the moment that it becomes sanctified, that the sanctification process begins. And so what's happening with the sculpture is what's happening in your life. Daily is it being chiseled away till eventually it stands and it is what God originally intended for it to be. That is the sanctification process. That's what's happening right now. That's why um, today we're gonna baptize three people. And all those people, uh, we got a teenager and, and two kids, none of them are gonna come out of the water and just immediately be perfect, you know, as much as their parents would want them to be. Like the teenagers probably still gonna have an attitude every now and then. And, and you know, the kids are probably still gonna whine when they don't get their way. Like that's just life, okay? But the sanctification is more and more of who we are and what our flesh is dying away. So more and more, Jesus is living and active in our life. Now, not just a spirit, you're not just a soul. You also have a body. All right. Now, this is where our salvation is coming in the future. This is where we'll get to a place where we've gone from the cry of a baby like that to having to put on diapers at the end of our life because our bowels have gotten so old that they can't even operate correctly. Okay. This is the part of our life where we'll receive salvation because we'll get to this place where cancer no longer can reign and rule in our lives. We can, we can get up and sit down without having to make sounds. All right. <laughs> oh, oh. We can wake up and just go like, oh, I feel better. Like you just go to bed and wake up and be like, how do I feel worse? I just slept. This is terrible. Like this is the part where our body gets this future salvation. So this is where, again, it's on the three parts of saved. So at this very moment, you are, if you're in Christ, you are saved, you're being saved and you will be saved. And the, the Bible word for this, and again, this is shallow into the pool. This is called glorification. There will come a moment when I will receive a glorified body, a fully of God body, uh, in the garden-like glory body. So this salvation happens at the three parts of you, three parts of time, and it saves you from, because again, it's salvation, right? So it's gotta be saving you from something. It's saving you from the three parts of sin. So in regards to your spirit, it was doomed, it was damned to hell. What Jesus comes in, he saves you from the penalty of sin. The Bible made it very clear from the very beginning, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus comes and he dies. So that if you put your faith and your trust in him, you are freed up from the penalty of sin. When you die, you just cross over into this new eternal life, heaven with the father. He saves you from the penalty of sin. As far as our soul goes, and again, this is the right now aspect, and this is where it's ongoing. He is saving you from the power of sin right now in this room, in your life. This is sanctification. This is where more and more Jesus' power is working in me and less and less sin's power is able to have an effect on me. And if I had to say a block of all of these things that we need to leverage more and more in our lives, it's this truth right here, that you have been friend, Brother, sister in Christ, you have been saved from the power of sin in your life. Lean into that truth with everything you have. Hold on to that truth. Do not bat back from what your enemy thinks is gonna get you. Stand strong. You have been saved from the power of sin. You are victorious in him. And then what's great and all, we, we can rock and roll with all the power. We can be saved from the power of sin. Like, and I, and I believe that you could potentially get here to this place where like you go a day and you end the day and you go, God, I don't know if I sinned today. Um, if I did, I know your forgiveness is there, 
But most of us, let's be honest, we have days where we're like, God, let me list out the 17 different things in the first hour of my day that I sin and all these mistakes. But maybe you get to this place where you feel like I don't struggle with this anymore. I, 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 don't, I don't have to look, I don't have to bounce my eyes. Like I can just walk through a, a mall or a baseball game and I can just go where I need to go and I don't have to do all these things. I'm, I'm completely free from the power of sin, even here on this earth. What you will not be free from is the presence of sin because you're still here. But what he promises is that our salvation, both past present and future is gonna eventually free us from even the presence of sin as we're at a place where we're fully in the righteous glory presence of the heavenly father as is all things new creation. So guys, this, this is salvation and this is what's being made available. This is what's offered to you. And this is what Jesus pioneered by his blood for you and for me. So he is the founder. He's the pioneer. He's the captain of this salvation. Let's keep going on in our passage. So he made this captain pioneer perfect through suffering, which maybe at first glance, everybody hit this passage and we're like, whoa, 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 let's hold up right there. You read that two times and it said that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. So does that mean that there was a time where Jesus wasn't perfect? Jesus wasn't perfect? I thought he was perfect from ever. Did he become perfect after suffering? Well, let's let's talk about that. Did Jesus become perfect? Or was Jesus always perfect? What do you think? (laughs) Yes. A little bit of both. In order to understand this truthfully and rightly, you have to understand when we talk about Jesus... You have both the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. The person of Jesus, perfect from the very beginning, perfect always. God does not change. So so Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, he is always perfect. He has never been a moment when he has not been perfect. He has always been perfect. But he's not just the person of Jesus. He's also the work of Jesus that makes him a founding author, pioneer, captain, savior. The person and the work. So now let's just talk about the work of Jesus for a second. Was it perfect in the manger in Bethlehem? Was the work of Jesus perfect? No. Think about it like this. This is why he says he was made perfect through suffering. If I'm I'm pitching a baseball game, and this never happened, but if I'm pitching a baseball game in inning number two, I have not given up a hit or a walk. My baseball people in the room, what am I throwing? A perfect game. In inning number five, I have not given up a hit or a walk. What am I still throwing? All right, the game is currently perfect, but it ain't over, all right? Now, inning number nine, I get the 27th out, and I still have not given up a hit or a walk. What have I just done? I have thrown a perfect game, but when, when did it become perfect? When it was finished. John 19, 30, Jesus on the cross screams out in a loud voice, it is finished. This is the moment in time where he is made perfect through suffering as he breathes his last. That's why he can say he is made perfect through suffering. He's the person of Jesus, always perfect. The work of Jesus, perfected, finished at the cross. And see, this is what the Hebrew people were having a hard time getting their mind around. Was, I don't like suffering. I don't want suffering. But then we have the Savior who we're supposed to devote our whole entire lives to, and he suffered. It says he was made perfect through that. Now, we may be sitting here going, okay, well, like, 
what in the world does this mean for me where I sit here and where I work here and, and the life I'm trying to live as a mom, a dad, a parent, a grandparent, empty nester here in McDonough, Georgia? Like, where do I go with this? The best place I could take you is actually just back to Scripture because the author of, he, of Hebrews is, is a pastor. And eventually he knows his congregation is asking the same thing you guys are asking as a congregation. And he answers them a little bit later on this way. Oh, keep going. He answers them a little bit later on this way in Hebrews 5, 8, 9. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who obey him. He goes on to say, oh, sorry. Let's go back to that. When he says he became perfect and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, the point he's trying to make here is that Jesus gets what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like down here. He can relate to you because he's been where you've been. And so if I could, what I wanted to try to do is to be able to put this passage, now that we've rounded it out, that he is the God who made everything for him and by him, and that he wanted to bring many sons into glory, and that he made Jesus perfect through his suffering, to be able to put this maybe in our modern language and paraphrase this in a way that maybe... um, puts it in an order that's maybe a little bit easier to digest and read and understand. Like if I had to paraphrase this verse and be able to explain this easier to a child, this is the way I would say it. Everything is made by God and for God. That's obvious. So it makes perfect sense that God the Father would make God the Son our perfect Savior through his suffering. Through the Son's suffering, bloodstained path was perfectly pioneered to lead many sons into salvation and onto glory. Not just into salvation, because that's not where it stops. He leads you into salvation. The bloodstained path into salvation. But it's a bloodstained path all the way to glory. To glory. Now, what we don't like is that along that path is the same things that Jesus experienced along his path. Suffering. The author of Hebrews knew that was coming. He said this to his church, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he's kind of like, the point is, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when it says consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, what he's saying here is you have not out God's ability to save you. That there is no place that you can go where you're like, I'm too far gone. I've I've messed up too bad. I can't get back in. No, What, what Jesus did on the cross when he, through his suffering, was perfected, is he experienced whatever sin that you think you have a lot of, he experienced it to the uttermost when it came on him and the wrath that was on that was all on his shoulders. He experienced your sin, your brokenness, your worry, your fear, your anxiety, your debt, your depravity. He experienced all of that to its uttermost. And because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost, which is his way of saying, there is no low that you could go that I have not already reached down to as I humbled myself, humiliated myself, became obedient to the point of death on a cross. He said, I can save to the uttermost. So you are not, hear the words of Jesus to you today, you are not too far gone. And please, for a second, don't think that Jesus is this type of God who sees you down in your pit and goes, man, that's tough. <laughs> ah, stinks to be you right now. 
You know, like I, I've conquered this, you know, I've, I've, I've whooped, you know, I've, Satan, Carl, you know, you know the story, all right? You went to Sunday school. Um, but I really hate that you're down there. Now, um, he, this is, he doesn't even do this. Like, if you can elite, I'll meet you halfway. You just reach up and I'll reach out too and we'll get out of this together. But who'd be willing to admit, like in the, in the honesty of your own heart, I'm not asking anybody to raise any hands, but you can ex- still experience pits, dark seasons, even when you're saved. Like a lot of times we think, well, I'll just get saved. It's just gonna be sunshine and rainbows, just riding on unicorns all the way there, you know, into the heavens. That's not how it goes. It's a broken life down here, even when you're saved. And a lot of times we think, well, Jesus is just up there. And, you know, when I get my stuff together, I'll be able to climb out of this hole. You know, here are the steps. That's not our Jesus, guys. Our Jesus is like, all right, cool, man. Like, I saved to the uttermost. I'm not freaked out by this. I saved to the uttermost. Been here, done this. I, 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 I know what this is like. I know how to get out of this. That's, guys, that's why it says he is a pioneer. He's blazed this trail before. This is not new territory to him. Your, your most broken, dark, jacked up place that you may find yourself in right now. He's not like, ooh, that's new. <laughs> like, there's, we have more in common with each other than we think. You know, sometimes people come up to me, but I feel like you were preaching right to me. That's because you think you're really special. But the reality is, <laughs> like we, we, you are special, you know. God's got a gold star in heaven for you. But the reality is like we all struggle with stuff, okay? And Jesus knows those things. And that's why gospel preaching just goes like, okay, Jesus here with you in this. And he's like, okay, we'll get out of this. I'm the pioneer. I've been here before, been done this before. Let's work out of this together. I can relate to you, not just on a point of sympathy, like, well, that's tough to be you. Like I feel for you, bro, you know, good vibes or whatever we talk about now. Like Jesus is not just sympathetic towards you. He is empathetic. He goes, I know exactly what that feels like. Felt it on the cross. I know exactly what that feels like. So this means a really big deal for us. This means that Christ's perfection makes possible, key word here, an unlimited capacity to sympathize with those exposed to trouble and temptation in this life. Unlimited capacity to sympathize with you and an unlimited capacity to pull you out of whatever you may have gotten yourself into. I'll end with this one last passage. Romans 8, 18. Because I know I'm talking today to some people who might be suffering. Paul is talking to the church in Rome and he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and again, Paul is not a guy who had lived the sunshine rainbow riding on unicorns into heaven in life. Paul's a guy who was shipwrecked, beaten. He was trouble around every corner of his life. He suffered immensely. He says these words, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, or this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, Paul has a great doctrine. He's got a great theology. He knows that glory is what he's heading to. He knows that the founder of his salvation found his salvation and is pioneering a bloodstained path that is leading all sons to glory. All sons, all daughters. That's where we head. If we're in Christ, the place we're headed to is suffering. Here's why I have to say that. Like, I wish I could tell you something different. I wish I could tell you, if you're in Christ, you're gonna go to heaven. You're in Christ, you're like, you're gonna experience the glory of God. Like, here's what you can know. Like, if you're in Christ, 
you are on a path, you are bound for glory, but that also means you're bound for suffering. And I wish, I, I really wish I could stand up here and tell you that life was gonna be different. That if you come to Christ, you're gonna get lots of money. If you come to Christ, you're gonna be super healthy. I wish I could come to you and tell you all those things that God's gonna answer all your prayers. But the truth of the matter is, if our savior was made perfect through suffering, why do we expect to escape it if we're his people? We, we are Christians. Christ is in us. If he was made perfect through suffering, maybe it has a point. Maybe it's all not meaningless. Maybe if I knew what God knows, I would pray for what he's given me right now because he's working something out. He's got me headed in direction toward glory. And if he let his son who is headed towards the glory that is knowing he is the crucified savior of the universe, if on that path he went through suffering, then maybe just maybe as one who is one with him, I would go through some too. So if this truth and reality that suffering leads to glory is real, well then what that means is comfort is the enemy. Comfort is a slow death. Comfort is not the goal anymore. Again, we're not just out here trying to be, you know, masochistic, going like, I just want to suffer. I just want to go through the worst possible thing I can go through. Like, no, none of us are that crazy. But Jesus told us very clearly, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Which is his way of saying that if suffering is a sign of solidarity with him, then friends, let us suffer well. See, a lot of times we think <clears throat> we get to church and we see all the things that churches do or we see other Christians on Facebook and Instagram and we think that we're being most like Jesus when we go to church or we think we're being most like Jesus when we read our Bible or we think we're being most like Jesus when we go on a mission trip and we're you know, taking selfies with, with little kids in, in Kenya or Haiti. We think we're being most like Jesus when we're serving in children's ministry and, and wiping butts and boogers and, and all those things. We think we're most like Jesus when I'm on the stage leading people in worship. I think I'm most like Jesus when I'm singing songs and I think I'm most like Jesus when I'm preaching sermons. I'm most like Jesus when I'm, when I'm being a good father, being a good mother. But friends, if this verse is true, then and the moments in life where you're being most like Jesus is when you are suffering well for his glory. That's when your faith is being perfected. I know it's very counterintuitive, but friends, this is the gospel. And this is why weekly, when we gather together to celebrate what's been done for us as Christians, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. Yes, we have the grandeur that is salvation on every part of us from every penalty of sin across all aspects of time, but we still hold in our hands a cup that represents the cup of the wrath of God that was poured out on the Son of God. And contained within that cup is juice that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for all of us. And along with that is a wafer that represents the body of Christ that was broken so we could be put back together again. A weekly symbol of the reality and truth it is through suffering, we are made perfect. And as you receive communion today, I pray you experience, understand, and grasp as much as you can how deep the Father's love is for you. That he would use something like this to bring many sons and many daughters back into glory. Meet with him today through communion.
pray. We're gonna sing a song. And then I cannot wait to celebrate the lives of three individuals who are gonna be baptized after that. So please stick around and let us partner with heaven's angel armies as we celebrate what was lost being found. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to gather together around your word. I pray right now, Jesus, that you would just be continuing to solidify and let's sink down deep how great a savior you are. And I pray right now, Jesus, for my brothers and sisters who are suffering. I pray that they know that they don't have to suffer in silence, that we'd love to pray for them, that we make ourselves available to them. that things don't have to be like they are right now. I pray that they would let the church be the church to them. That they would see in this cup, in this bread, the only resource, the only name, the only one who is capable of putting them back together is the one who has poured out one who is broken apart. And I pray you would unify us, that we wouldn't just be ones, but that we would be one because of your son and what he did, not just for me, but what he did for us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift that it is to be part of your bride, your church. In your name.